Today is Friday, December 17th. The year is 2021. This is No Easy Answers, and I am your host, Jules Taylor. Today, like all days, I have no easy answers for you. Well, thank you so much for tuning in from wherever in the world you happen to be listening from. I am delighted to have you with us for today's episode, and I'm really excited to bring you this interview with Professor Daniel Tutt. We're talking about Friedrich Nietzsche, and this episode really folds in nicely with some of our previous episodes. Uh, You might remember episode 34, where we spoke to Professor of Political Science, Ronald Beener. And we spoke about his book called Dangerous Minds, Nietzsche, Heidegger, and the Far Right. In that conversation, Professor Beener spoke to us about why he was sounding the alarm on the way certain philosophers are inspiring neo-fascism. Professor Beener urged us to recommence a more serious engagement, a closer reading of the texts of Nietzsche, to look past the seductive style of his prose, and to take his words literally— In other words, although Nietzsche describes himself as an apolitical thinker, there is this notion that the whole of Nietzsche's corpus should be taken as a political project insofar as the project of Nietzsche is to forward culture. Now, maybe the best way to explain some of this is to paraphrase the way Matt McManus describes the timeline of Nietzsche and his writings. Now, initially, during the time when Nietzsche was alive, He was relatively unknown, but later in his life he became quite popular and quite famous in reactionary circles. And then comes along Walter Kaufman and his writings, you know, we have an existential interpretation of Nietzsche. And through these interpretations came the notions that Nietzsche held many anti-Nazi views and that it would be unfair to characterize the whole of Nietzsche's oeuvre in that way. And then, you know, from there came the sort of proto-post-structuralist interpretations of Nietzsche, and they saw his work as apolitical or a critique of power. And this is the Nietzsche of Gilles Deleuze and uh, Michel Foucault. Uh, But, you know, as of lately, uh, in light of, you know, a contemporary resurgence of the far right, folks are revisiting the question of Nietzsche as a reactionary. Um, Just as an aside, there's a really great article by uh, a guest we've had on the show before, Roderick Day, at redsales.org called Really Existing Fascism. We'll leave a a link to that in the show notes. Um, But, you know, there are certain books that are supporting this refreshed view of Nietzsche as a reactionary. Earlier this year, an English translation of the 1,000-page book called Nietzsche, the Aristocratic Rebel, Intellectual Biography, and Critical Balance Sheet was released by Haymarket Books. This work was written by the late great Italian Marxist scholar Domenico Lacerdo, And it's really a product of a lifetime of scholarly work. Our guest, Daniel Tutt, has read through this book and discussed this work on his podcast called Jouissance Vampires. He has an excellent episode with Professor Carl Sachs. And during this interview, I do quote Professor Sachs because I feel like the way he described the project of Nietzsche, it's very succinct. It's the most succinct I've found. Um, But it really cuts to the core of what Daniel and I are discussing today. Uh, But also during my research on Nietzsche, I came across an interesting book by Jeff Waite called Nietzsche's Corpse, and this book, I believe, is written back in the 90s, but it's an earlier example of a philosophy professor urging us to commence a more serious engagement and a closer, more literal reading of the texts of Nietzsche. 
I was really delighted to find that Daniel conducted an interview with Jeff Waite on his podcast, the author of Nietzsche's Corpse, and so I thought, you know, who better to speak to on the topic of Nietzsche than a person who has read Lacerdo's book as well as Nietzsche's Corpse and actually spoken with Jeff Waite. And uh, so before we jump into the interview proper, I do want to send a very special thank you to our guest, Professor Daniel Tutt. I so appreciate him taking the time to sit down with me and discuss Nietzsche. Listeners of this podcast will know that I have been thinking deeply on this topic for the better part of a year now. And uh, I also want to send a big thank you to Craig over at the Acid Horizon podcast. Uh, Craig and his team are now running the Zero Books YouTube channel and the video for this interview will be debuting on their channel around the time that we release this episode. You know, I have to say, it's a real honor for this show and this conversation to be published in the Zero Books Network. I mean, if you had told me back when I first picked up a copy of Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism that some of my work or conversations will be featured on the Zero Books Network, I would have told you you're out of your mind. But here we are, and so a big thank you going out to Craig, of the Acid Horizon podcast and the Zero Books Network YouTube channel, and our guest, Daniel Tutt. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much for being a No Easy Answers listener. Thank you for the support, and thank you for recommending these conversations to the interlocutors in your life. So here's my conversation with Professor Daniel Tutt. Well, Daniel, uh, welcome to No Easy Answers. Thanks so much for uh, sitting down with me and talking about Nietzsche today. And um, at the time we're recording this, I had just spoken to uh, the folks over at Acid Horizon about placing this interview on the Zero Books Network uh, YouTube channel. So hello, uh, Zero Books uh, viewers and listeners and readers, and uh, hello to everyone, new, uh, No Easy Answers uh, listeners. And Daniel, again, thank you so much for being here, brother. Yeah, likewise. Uh, good to be here. Cool. So, um, I just, you know, man, it's, it's, I want to start this out by just saying that I, I live outside of academia. You know, I just, I read philosophy, I talk about philosophy and stuff. And I've, uh, over the past year or so, I've kind of witnessed this sort of sea change of opinion on Nietzsche sort of creeping in amongst, uh, uh, my philosophical circles in that, like, whereas we, uh, tend to, I mean, a lot of people get different things from Nietzsche, right? There's a thousand different ways you can come away with a version of Nietzsche, depending on which entryway you go into Nietzsche. Um, and so I have a bunch of philosopher friends who are like, oh, you know, he's joyful sciences and free spirits and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. uh, at some point, this sort of opinion started to creep up. And, and I'm noticing this as a person outside of academia, but I'm sure this debate has been going on uh, for many years of... Uh, how charitable we should be with our interpretations of Nietzsche and what is he actually saying. And there's uh, all sorts of issues of like, well, his writing is seductive, and so we get lost in that and we end up with a more charitable view, or maybe we read, we read Nietzsche as a vitalist uh, or, or from some other lens that might um, provide us with a way of being uh, way more charitable to his views than someone like a, like a Domenico Lacerdo uh, would uh, would be so. I wonder if you might be able to set the stage on like how did we get from this like the existential sort of interpretation to Nietzsche over to uh, sort of reckoning with this thousand page text from Lacerdo 
uh, sort of settling all accounts with with Nietzsche? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I, I I would caution a couple things. One is philosophers have a attachment issue, attachment problem to Nietzsche, and there's many reasons for that. Um, there's a seductive quality to Nietzsche. Nietzsche brings the literary into the fold of philosophy. So particularly for intellectuals that are uh, drawn to the world of ideas into the world of thought, first from poetry or, or from literature, uh, Nietzsche becomes a great partner in thinking. Um, Nietzsche obviously destroys um, certain lineages and genealogies of truth, both in terms of religion and also philosophy proper. There's a huge assault on the, the platonic legacy. There's a huge assault on the legacy of Rousseauism, Socratism, and Nietzsche creates, according to Lacerdo, uh, what he does is conceals uh, a certain political agenda and brings politics into places that it had never been brought into before. So then the question is sort of why have people missed this movement? And it is hardwired into the concepts of Nietzsche from perspectivism to the eternal return of the same um, to the world of power, right? So the, the level of the metaphysics also contains explicit political agendas, right? So so why has that um, been missed? I mean, in some ways, this is a question of the amnesia of history. A lot of people mm-hmm. talk about how Americans are amnesic over things like the Iraq war in the early 1990s. I remember when I was a fourth grade kid, I, I thought I was going to get drafted in some um, war, like Vietnam Part Two. I don't know how old you are, Jules, but maybe you experienced the same thing. But now it's like, you know, every generation that I teach students who weren't uh, born uh, after 9-11, right? So um, what happens to Nietzsche after the Second World War in the Anglo culture you know, Britain, United States, etc., is that Walter Kaufman's translations of Nietzsche basically whitewashed um, all of these more um, forward and explicit political components. Now, Lucerto will take it even further and say that uh, Coley, uh, uh, his great translation, the, the, the sort of uh, more recent compilation of the collected works of, of Nietzsche, um, also neglected this political, explicit political dimension of Nietzsche, right? For example, they did not um, seriously contend with Nietzsche's early anti-Semitism. They did not seriously contend with the revisions that Elizabeth, his sister, made to his work. And as an interesting aside, if you look at a very distinguished Nietzschean scholar, Robert Holub in the United States, who focuses on Nietzsche and Judaism, in his review of Aristocratic Rebel, he fully acknowledges that Lucerto is absolutely correct on the anti-Semitism aspect, right? Which is, uh, he follows Lucerto uh, there, right? Confessing mm-hmm. that Lucerto opens up doors even for historians, not necessarily for philosophers, uh, of an understanding of Nietzsche's politics that we hadn't seen before. But where he doesn't follow Lucerto, which is where a lot of Marxists, I think, should follow Lucerto, is to see the first proposal that I mentioned, which is that the politics animates the metaphysics and the wider project as such, right? But the fact that this very liberal, 
uh, uh, Professor Holub confesses this is very compelling because it shows the scholarly rigor that Losurdo brings to bear. No one can debate the scholarly rigor that Losurdo brings to the table. No one, right? We can debate the philosophy. We can debate the metaphysics. We can debate Nietzscheanism, right? As Jeff Waite does ISM with a, a little mm -hmm. hyphen there, right? Mm -hmm. um, or slash, um, kind of referring to the animalistic aspect of Nietzscheanism, right? That kind of uh, very primitive uh, thing that Nietzsche taps into, that vitalistic impulse that Nietzsche taps into, right? To, that's part of his um, seduction to seize yes. us that way, yes. right? So, so we can talk about why Nietzsche has been um, attractive to intellectual life, and part of it has to do with that animality, with that fact of suffering. Nietzsche centers human suffering, puts it at the very center of philosophy. He centers things politically in ways which are very robust and so radical that they often get missed by well-meaning bourgeois liberal philosophers, right? Mm. So we have to convince them of this new way of thinking about Nietzsche, which is very difficult to do because it is an interrogation on their own young uh, narcissism. And I mean that in a charitable sense, this is from, coming from a psychoanalytic perspective, we all have a bit of narcissism, right? Uh, but what I mean precisely is that we have an attachment to Nietzsche, and I had it myself, that I think we have to work through, right? Because there's something about Nietzscheanism and even existentialism, right? that has the, uh, kind of a bit of an adolescent attachment dynamic at play, right? There's a bit of a kind of playful, aristocratic rebel spirit. And that's what Lucerto actually means by use of the term rebel. I think it's a kind of underhanded reference to the distinction that Camus and Sartre would make between the revolutionary and the rebel, right? Right. Nietzscheanism is a kind of bourgeois mimesis or imitation of more serious socialistic forms of rebellion, right? Mm. And this is something very um, interesting, for, especially for young people. If um, Socrates' uh, wager is correct, that philosophy concern, ought to con philosophers ought to concern themselves with the corruption of the youth, the legacy of Nietzsche is of utmost importance to us today for that precise reason. Why? Because youth and young people follow through Nietzsche 100%, right? Mm. He's the one that seizes us. How many people have been converted to philosophy or even to the life of the mind as a result of reading Nietzsche? Even, even Jeff Waite makes a beautiful point, which is that if you study uh, late 1800s workers, who did they read more? in their free time, what limited free time they had. I'm talking here of proletarian workers, Marx or Nietzsche. It was Nietzsche. It was a lot of Nietzsche, yeah. I mean, I mean, they still read Marx. I'm not trying to say that. Uh, I think Jeff actually has a theory that, you know, Marx was too hard for workers, and I actually disagree with that. Sure. Um, but anyways, Maybe now would be yeah. uh, a, a good time just to say that, like, I, I'm a big fan of your podcast, Wissant's Vampires, and uh, some of the conversations that you have had about Nietzsche uh, with Jeff Waite, the author yeah. of Nietzsche's Corpse, um, and another uh, fascinating uh, conversation with Carl Sachs, mm -hmm. um, 
that was just, uh, I mean, a lot of this, uh, part of the reason why my interest is so piqued in speaking to you about Nietzsche is through yeah. these conversations, because there is, like I said, I mean, it's a thousand page book that kind of compels us to think differently about Nietzsche. And I'm yeah. very, um, I, I want to go back to the adolescent attachment, uh, term you just used, because, mm -hmm. uh, that really is, it's like, a. It's like a divorce with Nietzsche one mm -hmm. uh, might have to go through in order to mm -hmm. to reckon with the ideas of Lacerdo. Um, and, you know, and, and it came to this sort of central uh, uh, contradiction or this sort of uh, tension that I felt within me in discovering these uh, perspectives on Nietzsche um, in that, like, it maybe part of the reason why I was attracted to Nietzsche as a young man was because I was looking for the most radical texts I could find. And... Um, and in finding Nietzsche, I found that I shared a bit of like, uh, as, a, as a grown man and as an atheist, as a budding atheist at the time, I was like very interested in what Nietzsche had to say about Christianity. Mm -hmm. And I think what one of the things that cemented the sort of differences of like um, my philosophical commitments and, and, and where Nietzsche and I would, would completely have to deviate here um, was that, you know, I found that Nietzsche looks at Christianity and blames Christianity um, for completely other reasons, and I might have, you know, uh, I, I mean, I felt like Nietzsche looks at Christianity as upset with Christianity because of uh, Christianity planting the seeds of egalitarian politics within society. Right, right. And right. and so that is a completely different reason than like a sixteen-year-old kid who doesn't want to go to church or is mad at you know his uh, his lot in life for the time being or what have you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's actually one of the problems of Nietzscheanism at the level of philosophy, because there's a difference between what Nietzsche thought as a biographical aside. But I would uh, suggest that people actually uh, not really focus too much on the individual or of the of the biographical, but actually rather look at how the concepts work, right? Um, there's been a lot of uh, conversation recently about how Marx and Nietzsche might be combined, right? One of the things that scares me, right, and I think they should scare all Marxists or socialists in that conversation, in that possible unification of these two philosophies, right, is in Nietzsche's anti-egalitarian position, right? Because what you end up finding is a kind of error, I would say, around a socialism that is devoid of any commitment to egalitarianism, right? And... Mm -hmm. When we talk about Nietzsche having a kind of victory over the culture of contemporary capitalism, I think this is what we mean, which is that even socialists abandon the genealogical legacy of egalitarianism because it's somehow associated with nihilism and Christian goodness, right? So that, right. that actually is a performance of a kind of victory on behalf of Nietzscheanism, right? I mean, Nietzsche said that the eternal return would be a weapon for the ruling class. The concept itself would be a weapon for those in power, right? Hmm. Eternal return is not a revolutionary doctrine, right? It right. is far from it, right? And so, okay, but by me saying that, there's all kinds of post-war French philosophers like George Bataille and Gilles Deleuze who have done actually very interesting things with Nietzsche's idea of resentment or Nietzsche's idea of eternal return, right? Right. I think that we can we can benefit from that because they are trying to seriously discuss the question of Nietzsche with an egalitarian project or with a liberatory project that needs to be put on the table. But I think what we need to avoid is a kind of a kind of, you know, perfunctory 
unification of Nietzsche and Marx, right? I think that a lot more thinking needs to take place about the way that the Nietzschean corpus of concepts actually works, right? Right. So, as you can tell, I'm very excited about this issue. Very. Um, oh man, I'm very uh, yeah. riled up about it. You know. Yeah, I mean, I, I've uh, this has been a fascinating sort of thread that I've followed for a minute, and uh, you know, I, I was in the middle of in my own research of like scattered throughout different authors and texts. Man, um, I, you know, it occurred to me that there was this uh, Foucault quote where he was like, uh, you know, my Marxism is a little more of like a Nietzschean Marxism, yeah. and and so I I th I thought about that a bit because. You know, on the one hand, as it just occurs on the surface, I was like, you know, if someone told me, like in present day, like if someone just came up and was like, "Yo, I'm I'm a Nietzschean," I don't know if I would trust that person. You know, like so. So on that level, there's one thing, right? But on the other side of it, is like when when Foucault says, "Hey, I'm a my Marxism is more Nietzschean," I feel like maybe that's just how Marx approaches uh, the telling of history. Like he's yeah. referring to like yeah. genealogy of, of morals, uh, Nietzsche. Um, so as far as like a left project incorporating, you, you know, Nietzsche's uh, principles or philosophy, um, I, I share this common fear with you because I see a lot of uh, strange discourse happening online, a lot of merging of ideas. You have this, you know, people doing stuff like uh, maybe even like fourth political theory, which is wild. Mm -hmm. and, and like it's it's again mm -hmm. this merger of sort of contradicting notions. And so this fear of of combining Nietzscheanism with uh, with Marxism is something that like I feel like is maybe a, a strange sibling to these sort of notions of, of, of combining different ideas. So I right. so I wonder if there's anything from Nietzsche that, you know, as uh, in your own studies or as a philosopher, as a Marxist, yeah. um uh, aside from maybe like what we've said, we have to put on the table. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, do you take anything from in your personal philosophy out of yeah. Nietzsche that maybe could forward a leftist egalitarian uh, commitment mm -hmm. or outlook? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there is. I mean, Lucerto makes a strong argument, and I and I tend to agree with him that there's a methodology of reading politics where it had never been read before. Right. Yeah. So, so. In that way, I do not follow Nietzsche in the vitalistic turn, in the kind of anti-rationalist turn that he puts forward, in the anti-Hegelian turn that he puts forward. I don't follow him down that line. And we can talk about the social conditions in which that philosophy emerged. I mean, if you read The Destruction of Reason by, um, by Lukács, mm -hmm. you get, uh, a, I think, a much clearer picture of how to understand and how to read and how to work with the generation of a given philosopher's concepts, right? By situating them within their own time, right? Nietzsche had a motto that he was an untimely figure, right? But that motto was meant to elude people from the fact that he was actually very much of his time. So I think that we should read philosophers of their time, right? So there's that issue. However, on the level of collective subjectivity of the question of the body of the question of um you know what psychoanalysis concerns itself with like things like how the human being is constructed around drives right a theory of human desire these these things in that way nietzsche is has a lot to teach us right he has a lot to teach us i think on the marxist left in the sense that um, even the theory of resentment needs to be worked with, 
but it needs to be worked with very well. I think that the greatest thinker of Resentiment is definitely the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze. Sure. In Deleuze's incredibly difficult book on Nietzsche, Nietzsche and philosophy, we get, and I think this is actually one aspect, uh, and there's not many, but one aspect where Lucerto goes a little bit shy, which is that um, for Lucerto, Resentiment is not really fully fleshed out, right? Basically, Resentiment kind of is envy. Right. Whereas for Deleuze, he tries to conceive of certain sublimatory strategies whereby we can overcome structures of resentment. Right. So the fact that Nietzsche locates resentment in the way that he locates it may be problematic as it pertains to his agenda. But that doesn't mean that the left and the suffering of the working class, right, which con concerns us as Marxists, that doesn't mean that this isn't a real thing that we have to work through, right? So Nietzsche becomes a kind of reactionary who's locating a problem, which we didn't fully see before, and he's giving us mm. kind of means by which we can address it, right? So that's, that's kind of, kind of my one response. I think there's a few other areas, but I wonder... I wonder what you think. Well, I I think Nietzsche is in so many ways like his concepts of how a society should be ordered is deeply hierarchical in that it probably goes back to something like Aristotle with like uh you know yeah. thinking that like nature has uh, hierarchies naturally occurring within it and so one could only organize society with these principles in mind and uh but I but I think about how this sort of eternal return uh, on Nietzsche's end, uh, it seems to me this may have come about because of Nietzsche's readings of the law book of Manu, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, all, all of his ideas of caste, um, I, I think they come possibly from his readings. I, I, I haven't had a chance yeah. to, to dive into the law book of Manu, but I, I, I am curious as to these ideas of like Nietzsche's thoughts being not entirely uh, original to Nietzsche. And so the, the eternal return uh, lining up with like the law book of Manu and maybe the Kali Yuga stuff in, in right. cyclical time right. uh, is something that uh, that I've looked at in terms of uh, now, as far as what we can take from Nietzsche for a leftist project. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe just pointing out that the whole guy is deeply uh, committed to a caste system. Is, is Yeah. I mean, that, that's we, actually yeah. a really interesting point, Jules, which you think about it. A lot of people today from Varoufakis to Jody Dean are talking about, it's not the class struggle, it's the caste struggle. Right. The concurrence of that, Nietzsche is becoming under suspicion. Very interesting combination of activities, right? Uh, <laughs> you see my point? And, and uh, yes. but what, what I think, what Lucerto means by aristocratic rebel, I've already talked about rebel, but what do we mean by aristocratic? What we mean here is that the bourgeois revolution of the French Revolution was a partial one, right? In other yes. words... There were elements that the Jacobin movement, the radical dimension, and we can talk about the various demands of the radical dimensions of the French Revolution, that um, were not fully achieved, right? And Marx was quite aware of this by the time of 1848, that the Jacobins had not fully achieved, that they had retrenched, in fact, the class system, which had mm -hmm. to be addressed more adequately in the revolutions of 1848, which they tried yes. to do and which were suppressed. 
but a feudal aristocratic residue permeated the culture and permeated the class system. And I think that capitalism has always retained this. What Nietzsche's concept sought to do was to render that into a status quo. And what Nietzsche was very concerned with was the introduction of new uh, forms of enjoyment, new forms of pleasure, and especially new forms of leisure time for the working class. The reason that was a problem is because there was no analog historically of, according to him, of a culture that could produce great artwork, great aesthetics, that hmm. didn't have an element of slavery. So what you therefore get is the argument, not for a particular economic system, right? Rather, you get an argument for the existence of a minimal form of caste structure. Nietzsche is not, Nietzsche is anti-statist. Nietzsche is not pro-political uh, parties, etc. He's very, Don Dombowski shows in a book called The Dionysian Conspiracy, Nietzsche is Bonapartist. What is Bonapartist, mm -hmm. right? We have to read um, Marx's text on Bonaparte. Bonapartism is a kind of philosophy which would embrace the decadent chaos that the contradictions of the bourgeois social order produce, right? Mm -hmm. And this is why the great mediocrity, uh, this kind of uh, distant relative of the first Napoleon Bonaparte is thrown into a situation where he can say, yeah, I'm a little bit for the socialists. I'm also a little bit for the aristocracy and everything in between. I represent everyone. And that way he's very structurally, much like Trump, right? In the mm -hmm. sense that Trump is incoherence embodied, right? <laughs> right, right. right. And, and right. that's what Nietzschean politics is about. And so I agree with Gramsci when he makes the distinction between Bonapartism as pre-fascist and Caesarism as fascist. I think that Nietzsche is a Bonapartist. I'm not as uh, comfortable with saying that Nietzscheanism is always fascistic, because then we lose the um, precision sure. of our definition of fascism, right? right? And then we start to say all liberals are fascists, which is not true, right? So, um, anyways, I'm going on a thread here, but um, you'll have to remind me where, where we started. Uh, we just started talking about the book of Manu and cast. Yeah, and yeah, let's talk the about class that. Wars, so the, whole, the whole thing here has to be understood from Nietzsche's relationship to Schopenhauer. Hmm? Yeah. Schopenhauer had a kind of early fascination with, quote-unquote, oriental forms of social structure. Because Schopenhauer saw a great crisis within Europe, and he saw even the Abrahamic religious traditions as a kind of Orientalist perversion of European vital, vital spiritual culture, right? Hmm. Nietzsche said Schopenhauer is the only one who can see Europe from Oriental eyes, right? So there is a kind of um, banal Orientalism of Nietzsche. But it's a kind of um, ambivalent Orientalism in the sense that he fetishizes cultures that he thinks represent a greater form of caste hierarchy than Europe. And of course, Europe's former caste hierarchy is located in ancient Greece. Ancient Greece was only permitted 
the form of aesthetic greatness that it achieved by virtue of its caste, by virtue of its slave structure, right? So mm -hmm. in that way, um, Nietzsche can remain somewhat indifferent to the various political movements, political parties. He rebels against national liberalism. He's a critic of Bismarck, right? We know consistently he's a critic of all socialisms in all of its various forms. But what there are some essential political elements that Nietzscheanism must retain. And of course, those political elements are also elements that liberalism has to retain, mm -hmm. which is why um, Taine and Alexis de Tocqueville and Emerson also share many of these same aristocratic residues that were not fully overcome in French Revolution. They see those aspects of liberal bourgeois culture as necessary. But they disavow that. Nietzsche does not disavow that, right? So Nietzsche does say, he, Nietzsche in a way says what the liberal refuses to say, right? Mm -hmm. Right, where the liberal will, and Losurdo gives an incredible way to read this through the distinction between nominalism and realism, which is within political epistemology. And he shows that Nietzschean perspectivism emerges as a crisis over political epistemology that was opened uh, by the Jacobins in the French Revolution. So what, in a certain sense, you know, they let this egalitarian genie out of the bottle, and Nietzscheanism was an attempt to, to, to wrestle it back in, right, to close, right. to close the possibility of revolution, but revolution and modernity is thought of by Nietzsche in one unilinear fashion. In other words, if the socialists at the time from Blanqui to Produn, we're talking about how revolution in history has cycles, right? Unilinear right. cycles. And of course, he Hegel would break with this idea in his notion of dialectics. Eternal return, Lucerto argues, was actually a doctrine that Nietzsche concocted as a way to push against socialistic unilinear conceptions of time. It's a very fascinating hmm. thing, yeah. And he shows how... Um, Blanqui, the great leader of the Paris Commune, and he, of course, Lucerto centers the Paris Commune, is an extremely catalyzing event for Nietzsche, right? But he yeah. shows that uh, both Blanqui and Nietzsche had a theory of the eternal return, but both were diametrically opposed conceptions. Yeah? Wow. And so I've always uh, thought that there's, and there's hardly much literature on that at all. So that, that's actually one of the beauties of Lucerto's book, is that he opens these pathways of new ways to read the, you know, to read the Nietzschean legacy, basically. Wow. Well, you know, one thing that, that stuck with me about Nietzsche, in addition to what you're saying about the sort of, uh, that they, they've allowed this egalitarian genie out of the bottle, right? So he looks at the French Revolution as this kind of like disaster that needs to be undone, uh, or at least his project um, is, is, I mean, I, I want to read this like quote that Carl Sachs said on your show about what Nietzsche's project was, because that was maybe the most succinct sort of uh, encapsulation of what we're getting at uh, within this entire conversation of new ways to look at Nietzsche. Um, but he said that Nietzsche was speaking to those very rare individuals who have the capacity to be liberated from the shackles of slave morality and the project for those individuals is to institute a pan-European master or ruling caste to gather together the best traits of various European peoples 
and breed the superior cast that will then have all the best psychological and physiological traits and then be in a position for embarking on a project of global domination for the purpose of advancing the project of culture, which is art, philosophy, science, music, and so on. Uh, so, you know, that was one of the reasons why I want to recommend uh, listeners and viewers to go check out uh, Jouissant's Vampires is because that one quote uh, succinctly sort of uh, containerized everything that I was, was thinking about this stuff. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a very good way to, to understand the project. It also is reflective of Lacerdo's proposal, which is that we must read Nietzsche in his time. Right? Because this is not the picture right. one gets from Walter Kaufman. This is not the sure. picture going back to my original points of the adolescent Nietzsche reading, um, well, the young person in America in 2021 um, trying to get that spark, right? Maybe they're, they're living conditions, maybe they're working class, right? Maybe, maybe they're dealing with different forms of oppression day to day, like most of us do. Sure. Someone who comes around and shows you ways to experience life to its fullest, Amor Fati, to to, to have the courage, because there is a lot of courage in Nietzsche, which is another thing that I think Nietzsche can give to us, is a kind of um, strong critique of the virtues, a strong critique of morality, right? We need to follow that through and not be fundamentally nihilistic anti-moralists, right? I think this is kind of goes back to some of these new attempts to fuse uh, Marx with Nietzsche. They end up becoming nihilistic, in my view because they don't dialectically think about morals as such. But, you know, for young people, it's quite common to, to uh, say, fuck the whole thing, right? So there's a sort right. of, there's a destructive ethics in Nietzscheanism, which is mm. seductive, no doubt, that appeals to us today. Now, on this whole point of the quote you just read, that is the Bonapartism in perfect form, because that was Napoleon's um, effort. Which, which was basically to kind of create a type of um, liberal meritocracy, which is the sort of predominant form of ideology that we live with in America, right? We're told that we live in this kind of meritocracy. Right. And Nietzscheanism is very close, I think, to Ralph Waldo Emerson's model of, of, of citizenship, but it has some differences. And I was actually alerted to this distinction between Emerson and Nietzsche by Peter Sloterdijk. The, and he's oh. actually a conservative philosopher. He's German, still living, although very senior. And he's an important philosopher in his own right. He's a good example of someone that a Marxist should contend with. Why? Mm -hmm. Precisely because he is the philosopher of contemporary entrepreneurialism. Hmm? Wow. He argues, yeah. he argues, and this is why Nietzsche is such um, valued and why Silicon Valley loves the residues of Nietzscheanism, right? Because it gives the answer to the lie of the ideology of entrepreneurial liberal capitalism, which is that those rare entrepreneurs absolutely deserve their success. And in fact, there's a kind of correlation between what Nietzsche called the ascending line and the descending line of humanity. So Nietzsche concocts a kind of Manichean division amongst humanity that's always present, according to him. It is similar to Marx's division between bourgeoisie and proletariat. Hmm? People sure. say that Nietzsche is anti-religion and so on. No, he called himself after Zoroaster. Zoroaster was a great dualist, right? Right. Nietzsche saw the necessity for what he called Chandala class 
in his eyes, a Chandala class is absolutely necessary. The problem is, is that socialists tell the Chandala that they should not be happy in their toil. Nietzsche says, before the socialists, really, the Chandala working class could, you know, uh, enjoy their suffering. It's a lesser form of suffering. The Ubermensch suffer in their leisure time. They suffer even in their privilege. And that's how you make great art for Nietzsche. You suffer in your privilege. Now, this is why I think Lacerdo's uh, title is very correct <laughs> to, right. to kind of talk about a bourgeois rebel, a kind of fake right, rebel, right? Right. right. This, is, this is what Nietzsche is. Is he brilliant? Does he have good poetry and so on? Yes, he does. Right? Is he a good philologist? Yes, he is. Sure. I'm not going to take that away from anybody, but we should be clear about the project, right? right. This yeah. is what Lacerdo calls, by the way, transversal racialization. It's a very interesting idea which is that Nietzsche's racism is not Wagnerian, it's not Third Reich racism, it is rather transversal, which means that Nietzsche's ideal society, if we could say that, would be one in which imminent caste divisions occur by virtue of the system itself, that the ascending and declining line of humanity is imminently decided, right? Nietzsche said that he writes his books for those whose lives have turned out well. I write my books only for those whose lives have turned out well, right? In that way, and Sloterdijk actually says something interesting, is that Nietzsche had a very interesting um, reputation, especially in Germany, is that he said losers would attach themselves to Nietzsche, thinking that, right, so then you have this really ridiculous debate occur within Nietzschean scholars and followers and so on. It's like, who's the winners, who's the losers? Because you have wow. to decide, right? right you may right. be a loser, I may be a winner, but who's to say, right? Right? Right, right. What's the basis of my of my victory, of my exceptionality? I have to prove it always. I always have to be proven my exceptionality. We're not equals, right? This is Nietzscheanism, right? Right. There's no such thing as equality between us. To even think so would be a a assault on our humanness, right? Sure. Right. right. This is Nietzscheanism. Right. But yeah. this is Silicon Valley, too. This is Elon Musk, too. So Jeff Waite is correct that Nietzscheanism is the air that we breathe. Right. In the great hermeneutics of suspicion, Freud, Marx, Nietzsche, Jeff Waite says, I think rightly, that Nietzsche won. If those thinkers are the thinkers of putting modernity under suspicion. Right. It is Nietzsche who. Uh has is the is what jeff way i think rightly says the techno culture of our everyday life right so therefore yeah we need to think very hard about how to extricate ourselves from this uh well right yeah uh, yeah i mean it kind of reminds know. me of like uh the you know it was a strange concept when i first heard about it but this essay that was written in like the 90s called the californian ideology in which it sort of took the aspects of like uh silicon valley and uh entrepreneurial sort of mm -hmm. aspects and combined it with this sort of san francisco bohemian sort of mm -hmm. attitude and, and and you're absolutely right in that like it is speaking to like the the Nietzschean sort of necessity of determining who is lesser than who is superior or dividing right. that stuff up um it, it seems wild that um 
that maybe now just thinking about this Californian ideology thing, it makes kind of sense if you look at it from a lens of Nietzsche in that that's kind of what Nietzsche did is he took these aspects of, uh, uh, of dividing up humanity, but kind of combine them with this, uh, you know, free spirits, joyful sciences, uh, for lack mm-hmm. of a, maybe a bohemian could adequately describe that, uh, sort of combine these elements. Right. Um, but I also, in terms of, uh, the necessity of caste, I think he, he elevates like part of the emergency of this, like, uh, necessity of caste this this commitment to caste within his philosophy. I think he kind of escalates that urgency to a certain degree by speaking to a uh, a sort of loss of telos uh, in the universe, like this uh, horizonlessness. Um, in that, like, because we have uh, because we have brought about this, this uh, egalitarian genie out of the bottle, right? Now we have lost our way in that, like, the reason why uh, the Chandala class can't be content in their own misery <laughs> is because they're they don't have a directionality or an orientation within, uh, say, the cosmos, perhaps, you know, like right. they, they can't tell what's up or down um, sort of thing. And I, you know, and that concept really interested me in terms of, uh, uh, I think there was a Nietzsche quote, I can't remember if it was him that said something like, uh, who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon uh, or something to that end, uh, which is really kind of nuts when I, you know, to because this this I think this goes back to a sort of critique of modernity overall, right? Like part of mm-hmm. the reason why he's mad at Christianity and the French Revolution is that he feels that we uh, are we have lost our way, and and with mm-hmm. the loss of this telos and this orientation, um, that to me has become the deeper meaning behind the uh, the Nietzsche quote of like God is dead, he remains dead, we have killed him. Like right. that is what he's talking about. Yeah. Um, so, I wonder if you could maybe uh, speak to, because uh, for me, when I, it, it took a little while for me to come around to this entire perspective on Nietzsche, yeah. you know, like, uh, I had what we've, what you, uh, term you used earlier, an adolescent attachment, of course I had that, you know, Nietzsche was mm-hmm. like, someone that maybe gave me some courage young in life to to go my own path or to try to enforce my own will upon the world or something, for lack mm-hmm. of a better term, right? So, so I had this uh, this entire adolescent attachment to Nietzsche, and um, you know, at some point, I I started reading uh, Nietzsche's The Antichrist, mm. and the first thing, and this is supposed to be his, I think it's his autobiography that he did late in life. Most of his <clears throat> views are supposed to be extremely salient within that work, and he said, uh, "Let us look each other in the face." This is how he opens. He's like, "We are Hyperboreans." And to me, I was like, holy Christ, what's going on with the Hyperborean thing is like, that's a, uh, that is a term that obviously comes from the Greeks, but it's like been appropriated by like white nationalists to signify Mm -hmm. this, uh, this um, mythical white originality of this like noble peoples that were up in the north that uh, came down. And so, so I see how uh, Nietzsche being kind of canonized within the far right has come to yeah. inspire them, not just in their ideas of elitism or anti-egalitarian mm-hmm. ethos, but also in terms of supporting uh, an overall like mythos um, to Arianism in that yeah. in that way. And I, yeah. So so in terms of like the hyperbore and all that stuff, I just mean to say like uh, I, I had sent you a couple quotes uh, yeah. from Nietzsche ahead of time. And it, I guess one of the bigger mysteries out of this conversation is um, 
how are we missing these quotes that are right. plainly speaking about like Arianism um, that are, you know, well, Ronald yes. Beaner, he yes. actually said like a couple quotes are like incitements to genocide, uh, oh, in yeah, a way, yeah. which is, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So how are yeah, we missing yeah, yeah. this stuff, man? Well, I mean, I, I think first of all, you know, we live in a very different culture. We live in, in what the Boer calls a spectacle society, right? So sure. a, a strong quote, especially for Nietzsche, who is adopting this notion of a decentered truth of perspectivism, right? Uh, doesn't mean much. But <laughs> what, one thing Lacerdo shows is that in an early lecture, which was then converted into an essay called Socrates and Tragedy, had very explicit anti-Semitic agenda, extremely explicit, so explicit that Nietzsche would be canceled if it was allowed into a curriculum. It sure. would not be allowed into a curriculum. I think that's actually a very big danger if you were to excise Nietzsche from a curriculum, that would be a danger. Uh, I think that would actually feed the vulgar blood and, and soil fascists. Because again, like sure. I said, Wagner um, and his theories of, of um, racism were too biological, too, too, um, although, although Nietzsche was a proponent of eugenics, that doesn't quite mean too much because most intellectuals at the time, including the most progressive, also had some affinities to eugenics. Very unfortunate fact. Mm -hmm. So where do you hold Nietzsche accountable? You hold him accountable there. You hold him accountable for anti-Semitism. I actually disagree on both counts, although they're both problematic. I think transversal racialization shows something more interesting, which is that Nietzsche's theory of racism is a futuristic, futural theory that is more descriptive and has more explanatory power to describe our own contemporary society than the 20th century. In what sense? Because he said, my philosophy will only take place after great socialistic wars have occurred. Of course, he predicts World War One in form, and he addresses his audience to a future construction of the Ubermensch to come. And that way he can remain both untimely and timely at the same time. Because when you read him now, he's speaking to us. He's trying to invent us. He's trying to invent a certain uh, solution to the Manichaean division amongst humanity that he puts forward, right? Right. In that sense, it's an imminent capitalistic form of racism that's quite different than old-fashioned um, biological racisms of social Darwinism, right? Right. It's quite sophisticated form of racism. Again, it's an imminent form of racism where winners and losers are imminently decided based on kind of performative metrics. It's kind of meritocratic, hyper-meritocratic racism, basically, right? <laughs> and... Um, um, so this is the way that I, I see his legacy there. Now, specifically to the quotes, I mean, again, Arianism is revamped to refer, and Carl Sachs mentions this on the podcast as well, to refer, Arianism could also in Nietzsche's vision in the future include Jews. Nietzsche actually thought that some Jews of high finance uh, exhibited exceptionality within, you know, they, they exhibited uh, uh, certain levels of greatness, they can therefore be brought into the as uh, ascending line, right? So uh, it's a very idiosyncratic and strange idea of, uh, of that Nietzsche has here. Um, this has led actually Lucerto to show that Elizabeth Forster Nietzsche concealed 
And Wagner, in early essay, uh, letters, Cosimo Wagner and Richard Wagner, it's a very interesting thing. The, 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 the first lecture that I mentioned on Socrates and tragedy, Wagner told Nietzsche in a letter, do not conceal your views on anti-Semitism, basically because in the culture of Germany at the time, you could risk getting canceled. Conceal wow. it. Conceal it. Right? And that's actually a very interesting motif of Nietzscheanism, which is the motif of the mask. Again, goes back to Bonapartism, goes back to the emphasis on embracing chaos, embracing decadence. And again, going back to Blanqui, the leader of the communards of the Paris Commune, who used conspiracy for the proletariat to achieve certain tactical ends, you could say a rationalist form of conspiracy, Nietzsche would embrace conspiracy for bourgeois ends, right? He would embrace nihilist confusion and decadence for bourgeois ends, which is why Nietzsche is also a huge celebrator of criminality. He found in the criminal a certain level of courage and daring and so on and so forth, right? And there's actually some very interesting 1950s movies that are trying to reproduce the kind of Nietzschean uh, criminal. So we have the kind of Nietzschean hipster rebel, but we also have the Nietzschean celebration of violence. I mean, even in a movement of literature that I quite love, the Beats, the Beatnik movement, you know, they also had that stupid kind of teenage Nietzschean obsession with um, criminality, which is why when they were kids, they were always robbing stores to get a thrill out of it, right? Um, nothing worse than that kind of thing, you know, in my opinion, right? You probably know people from your childhood that were a bit like that. Um, sure. Anyways, these are, these are things, I mean, the other reason here is that the genealogy of morals, by the time Nietzsche creates Zarathustra and his later work, he's very aware of what his reputation will be. You know what I mean? He's very aware that he is going in the pantheon of great philosophers, I think, in a certain sense, even though his reputation would obviously be way larger after he dies. I think towards the end, he had an awareness of the profound... Um, event that he uh, performs on philosophy and in thought, right? Um, so he conceals his agenda. And Lucerto's book shows that the aristocratic agenda really remains consistent. Um, so we can talk about that too, the kind of, because I think some of this stuff from the, um, that you quoted on the Chandala class, on Arianism, um, it's all there. It's all there. I mean, you know, the reason that people miss it is because they're more seduced by all this other stuff. They're more seduced by the allure of this fantasy of uh, uh, a world without equality, right? Uh, you can see. I mean, it's, it's he appeals to the darkest parts of us. Yeah. Wow. So you, you've read through the thousand-page Lacerdo book now. Um, would you share any thoughts you had on the book, like it, its lasting impressions on you or anything new that you gathered from the Lacerdo text? Mm -hmm. um, like I mentioned before, there's a lot of really great stuff here. It's very, it's very readable. Um, you don't need to be a professional philosopher or anything like that to read the book. So I recommend everybody, you know, pick it up. Um, it... it where it comes a little bit shy is I've, I've, I've intimated a couple points. One, I would have liked to have seen a, a better treatment of the category of resentment, which I mentioned below, mm -hmm. I think, and other philosophers really tease that out for a more left-wing emancipatory end. 
So that's one one shortcoming. I think another shortcoming may be that Lucerto's enemies of contemporary philosophers, Johnny Batamo, Jacques Derrida, Foucault, to a lesser extent Adorno um, and Deleuze, he accuses all of these contemporary Nietzschean scholars to practice what he calls the hermeneutics of innocence, right? Which is a play on Nietzsche's notion that human becoming needs to have a kind of naturalist reflection of the innocence of nature, right? So by innocence, right. he doesn't mean innocence as we know it from a fairy tale. <laughs> he means like the bear in the woods eating the salmon in the most vicious way. That's the innocence of nature, right? Right. Um, that's how Nietzsche wanted the Ubermensch to come into to fruition, right? Which is why he's at the top of a mountain riding and he's getting right. frostbite and all of this kind of fetishization, <laughs> fetishization right. of suffering, but artificial suffering, importantly. Um, <laughs> so, so, um, what I'm trying to say here is that I think Lucerto is very much of the Italian communist scene and he has very specific, um, gripes with the direction of the Italian communist movement in the latter part of the 20th century. He's writing at the point of a great failure of the USSR, of the collapse of really existing socialism. We are in a completely different world than that. We're of a different generation. So we need to think about the Nietzschean legacy with all of the rich stuff that he gives us to understand it, to unlock it. But we don't have the same enemies that Lucerto does on the left. We need to find out um, how to, for example, there's two chapters on Marx and Nietzsche, right? Where Lucerto examines Marx and Nietzsche on ideology, Marx and Nietzsche on religion. And you paradoxically find that in some ways they are perfect enemies. I think uh, you actually mentioned the point there, are they symmetrical enemies, right? They're so yeah. dot, like, so diametrically opposite one another. And I think that there's a lot of truth in that. There's a lot of truth in that. And there's a kind of profound dialectical conundrum that we have uh, uh, as Marxists uh, when we're thinking about this figure. So he must be wrestled with by Marx. He must be, he must be um, contended with. He must not be canceled, right? Um, I think that's very clear. Um, yes. What else? I mean, there's so much. I mean, I think that um, there's a lot to say about historicism, about what Nietzsche opens up for the study of history that could still be done, although it's a thousand page book. It's very uh, exhaustive. It's not complete. There's still some areas that can be overturned. Um, but it is it is an adventure. And my hope, my honest hope is that it changes the the paradigm, right? Because he also shows that a lot of historians that are Marxist, left-wing historians, um, Arno Mayer, Eric Hobsbawm, those figures do not have a problem getting rid of Nietzsche. They do not see Nietzsche as a kind of necessary figure of thought. It is the philosophers that do. The so it's our problem, right? He is our problem, right? Other people can say, what are you talking about? Yeah, let's let's pretend that he's a, a bratty, adolescent bourgeois fake rebel with bad poetry right. sure oh i mean i don't really want to push that line personally because i think that's a little not true you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but there's some there's some truth to it and you know if people want to to um dog on him i mean that's the other thing is that nietzsche 
he fights with knives and real blood in a way. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he understands the stakes of the victory of the proletariat, right? Like if Lucerto, <laughs> if Lucerto is right, Nietzsche is the greatest antagonist to the possible victory of the working class that there is in thought. Right. Right. If that's true, then <laughs> we got We got our work cut out for us. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I, I guess that's, that's what I would say to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's clear that we're not like obviously trying to cancel Nietzsche and we're certainly not trying to take Nietzsche away from like the 16 year old kid who learned about <laughs> courage out of Zarathustra or something, you know, like I, like that's I, I I totally understand that and that that Nietzsche you know I just you know in watching this sort of um, this this kernel and this thread unravel um, and and like I said it's got a it's it's been happening for a while but it, from my vantage point uh, this has caused me considerable uh, you know the need to like reflect on what right. exactly am, have I taken from Nietzsche right what right. did Nietzsche mean to me and um and 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 are these in any way aligned towards my philosophical and political commitments? Right, right. Um, so right. it's been it's been something I've been giving a lot of thought to. Um, and you had mentioned the um, there is a concern of like uh, of of whether Marx and Nietzsche are symmetrical. You know, right. Uh, my friend Roderick Day out at uh, RedSales.org yeah. uh, wrote this article called "Really Existing Fascism," mm -hmm. uh, in which he kind of uh, he in a in a thought experiment place them symmetrically and and that to me um you know I, I was i was really like delighted to read that article and that like he mentions jeff Waite in there yeah um because there, there weren't too many people in my circles like i said i'm outside of academia that had found nietzsche's corpse or jeff Waite's book um so i, I mean but do you you said there's some truth to that, and I wonder if you might say a couple words of yeah. how adequate it is to place Nietzsche symmetrically. Is that like, some of the things that have come up in this conversation already mm -hmm. in terms of shared traits of Nietzsche are things that I uh, perhaps had not noticed before, like the yeah. sort of Manichaean division of bourgeois right. proletariat versus the lesser and the ascending lines. Right. Um, but yeah, so like, how adequate is that to to place Nietzsche symmetrically? I would marks? I would say that. It's a very interesting debate with internal to Marxism because for Marxists, yeah. for Marxists that focus on the political Marx, for Marxists that focus on the eleventh theses on Feuerbach, philosophers have only interpreted the world. The task is to change it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, if I'm right, if Lacerdo's right, that eternal return is a doctrine, and the Nietzschean set of weapons of concepts are doctrines for the preservation of an aristocratic residue within capitalism, then Nietzsche becomes the biggest antagonistic to any possible changing of the world. In Both that the way, stakes. yeah. Yeah. Wow. Right? Yeah. In that way, um, we have to read Nietzsche as a, um, the enemy at that level, at the most fundamental level of philosophy. Now to say that Nietzsche's concepts do that work, this is what Jeff Waite calls the esoteric dimension of Nietzsche. And um, in a very interesting way, Jeff Waite will argue in about 600 pages uh, in his book called Nietzsche's Corpse, um, that Nietzsche makes the esoteric exoteric. Right? So by that, we can, we can say that the esoteric secret agenda of Nietzscheanism become, is given permission for its public visibility in the 
pseudo celebration of the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs around their greatness. And so in other words, Nietzscheanism naturalizes the very hierarchies that he's trying to maintain. Hmm? Yeah. Um, wow. There's this aspect, which, okay, Jeff uh, Aping Bataille says Nietzsche is the only philosopher outside of communism. Bataille said that. Mm -hmm. What the hell does that mean? Uh, for Bataille, basically Nietzsche is somebody who can think liberation in some way that is remains quite esoteric and almost of these ancient mysteries kind of thing, right? You kind of need an initiatory thing to fully understand what Nietzsche's doctrine of freedom really is. And that's why a lot of these French Nietzscheans ended up themselves very mystical. This is why Lacerda was so concerned with Nietzscheanism creeping into Marxism. Because when Nietzscheanism creeps in, the proletariat thinks of itself in um, vertical form, thinks of itself in hierarchical form, thinks of the role of the intellectual in a very particular way. And Gramsci, even though he was not a great expert on Nietzsche, he knew, he had the clairvoyance in the prison notebooks to recognize that deleterious effect of Nietzscheanism internal to Leninism, right? So I think Leninism in its own verticality needs to be careful with the Nietzschean affirmation of thinking that the intellectual is so exceptional, so great, right? We need to maintain a kind of horizontality amongst, amongst ourselves as communists. I think this is extremely, mm. extremely important. And Nietzscheanism is anything but horizontalism. It's the opposite of that. Um, so, uh, but look, I mean, Jeff Waits, Lacerdo's books, in a way, Jeff is, when he wrote this book, it was very courageous. He was writing it when academia was very Derridian. It was all about deconstruction. And in America, that might have been a cool moment for thought and creativity and literature and imagination. But politically, it was very weak. And here's Jeff Waite saying, actually, Derrida is wrong in his reading of Nietzsche. He's not emphasizing the politics. Nietzsche is a great antagonist of him. But in the 90s, you know, socialism had been defeated, right? We're in this kind of unipolar world, right? And this kind of capitalist realism was starting starting to set in, right? I think right. there's a relationship between the decline in capitalist realism, especially for our generation, the rise of socialism, and a new way to read Nietzsche. So we can bring back Jeff Waite's mm. argument. I mean, Jeff was probably shocked that I even reached out to him to talk about his book because he sees it as a historical relic, right? He's a member of yeah. the Communist Party in the 1990s. Right while everything was collapsing, right? But things are now being rebuilt. Socialism has a future, right? We have a future like this. We're not of that time, right? Now is the time for a kind of new way, a new way forward. So um, this is, yeah, this is what I would say. Awesome. So Daniel, I thank you again for sitting down with me and talking to Nietzsche. I so appreciate all of your insights. And um, can you tell folks where to find you online and where they can find your podcast? Yeah, um, I'm I'm at uh, my first and last name at Twitter and uh, pretty easy to find, pretty online, although I try to uh, limit it. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, look, one of the things with the COVID pandemic is that it's thrown us online. And my position there is that we have to be 
we have to embrace some aspects of of its emancipatory possibility. So I've started, you know, um, weekly, often study groups um, at torsion groups, torsion underscore groups, um, where we look at texts within Marxism, within contemporary philosophy. Um, we're holding a huge event in early February on Georg Lukács' Disruption of Reason, which I mentioned earlier. But Lukács is another figure who is totally denied by the academicians, right? But mm -hmm. is a preeminent philosopher of, of Marxism from the you know early to mid 20th century. And in his book, Destruction of Reason, which we're going to study, he has like this huge section on understanding Nietzsche. And it's fabulous stuff. So that'll be a really cool event we're doing again on Zoom, you know. Um, cool. So we're doing that. And then the podcast is Restunts Vampires. We have some really it's an interview format of just kind of interviewing writers and philosophers, but um, always enjoyable as well. When is the uh, the Lukacs event happening? So that's going to happen on February 3rd through February 5th. And we have two different um, set of speakers. One will be intellectual historians of the rise of fascism. And the second will be um, philosophers. Because Lukács' big book, it's also a big book like Lacerdo's Destruction of Reason. Basically, how, it's a very interesting study. It basically has the following premise. How the hell did fascism, and here I mean like Mussolini, Hitler, etc. How did mm -hmm. that come about? And what was the responsibility of intellectuals within Europe for its emergence? And he does a kind of historical genealogy of the role that philosophers played in the emergence of fascism and he places nietzsche at the very center of that right and um it's a totally totally great read um about the emergence of fascism so um i think and i think it has a lot to tell us today because one of the things during the trump period is like we we weren't sure what this was right like we yeah we, so i think it will help us kind of get our bearings there on our present awesome that is super cool i look forward to that in february brother and uh again thank you for coming to talk to us about nietzsche and uh you know this is a lot to chew on and i'm sure the viewers and listeners over at zero books will appreciate our conversation and everyone out there please go check out juissons vampires wherever you get your podcasts uh daniel tut thank you so much again All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Professor Daniel Tutt. Let us know what you think. There are several ways for you to interact with the podcast. Let us know in the YouTube comments, on social media. Twitter is where we're most active. On Reddit or on our Discord. We love hearing from listeners and we value all the feedback we receive. Special thanks once again to Daniel for speaking to us and for Craig at Acid Horizon for hooking us up with the Zero Books YouTube channel. Rumor is this may start being a once a month thing and I look forward to the conversations that will be had in support of the Zero Books YouTube channel. We've got more interviews forthcoming in the month of December. Keep an eye out for an interview episode featuring Cooper Carraway. That interview is available now on our Patreon and if you have not become a subscriber yet, uh, please consider throwing us a couple bucks a month on our Patreon to support the podcast and in exchange you do receive cool bonus content and interviews in advance. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for your support. And we'll see you next time. All my guys, gals, and non-binary pals. See ya.